welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. How do we change? Every, every December and January, I'm thinking about how to change. Anyone do like New Year's resolutions this year? Goals? Raise your hands. I want to see how many of you are actually going to do something good with your life. Okay. Just... Okay. How... Last year, we did a series, a mini-series for five weeks on how we actually change. Um, but then I started thinking about how do we, not just how do we change as an individual, how do we change as a community? How do you change a community? How do you change a city? These are the questions that keep me up at night. How do you change a city? How do we change a system and an institution? How do we change a nation? Because I look out at this world in this time, and I've wondered, actually, I start looking at culture in this cultural moment, and I see the problems in our nation. I see the problems in our city. I see the problems in our community, and I see the problems in my own life, and there's similarities for all of them. And I wonder if um, you see those similarities. And the question I've been asking is, have we settled have we settled with the way things are? Have we surrendered to the powerful formational force that is culture? I look at Christianity in the West and it seems like we are more influenced by media and business than Jesus. And when I read about what Jesus talks about in the scriptures, I see all this life and all these promises for life about being free and about being healed and about being transformed and power and eternal life and God's kingdom available here and now. And I just wonder, have we just settled to allow things to happen and be what they are and just because they're so overwhelming Like, have we just settled for divorce rates to be the same and anxiety to be norm and depression to be norm, to suicide rates to continue, life expectancy to keep dropping? Have we settled for poverty and homelessness and, 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 and the issues that our world faces and single moms raising families by themselves and, and, and foster system? I'm, I'm just looking, have we settled? And then in our own lives, have we just settled for loveless marriages? Anger to be our primary emotion? Have we settled for these things? Have we just allowed defeat? Just keep consuming and checking out on media and being influenced by that and we'll just keep coasting so we can survive. Anyone else think like this? Maybe it's just me in our very depressing winter. <laughs> I was at the beach yesterday. <laughs> Go to Judges chapter six. There's this moment in Judges where God acts decisively. And I want to just share this story with you because it's so amazing. In Judges six, let's just read this and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a bit of the story in context. So it's Judges, it goes um, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. How many of you are reading the Old Testament with us right now through the Bible reading plan? It's crazy. The Israelites did evil, chapter 6, in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. 
Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, excuse me, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out for the Lord for help. It's pretty bad, right? When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship other gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened. So this is what's going on. What we have in the story of the Old Testament is the people of God were oppressed by Egypt. Eventually they're freed. And what they're told is that they're gonna be given this land, this promised land, this land that would, be, would produce abundance and wealth and provision and prosperity. That this land is a land of promise and the promise is all of that success and wealth and all that prosperity. And eventually they, they're, they're in the wilderness and they disobey God. So God sends them into the wilderness for 40 more years and a bunch of people die. And then he allows them, once everyone's dead, to go into the promised land. And in the book of Joshua, it's the story of Joshua conquering the people, God kicking out all those other people. It's very violent. And they, they settle into the promised land. But there was a condition on the promise. The condition for the promised land was if. This will be yours if you obey. You will have this land of prosperity and abundance and wealth if you obey me fully and keep my covenant through the commands. And what we get to is right after Joshua, what we learn is the Israelites were fickle and they already started worshiping other gods. And so by Judges chapter six, we have the Israelites forgetting their covenant and God as a way of protecting their covenant, sending the Midianites and all the Eastern peoples to invade the territory. And so what we have in present moment for this story are the people of God living in the promised land without the promises of God. They've settled into the promised land and they're impoverished. They're suffering. They're surviving rather than thriving. They're surviving by building shelters in caves and by, uh, by not producing any crops because every time they would plant seeds and it was harvest time, the, 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 their enemies would come in and take it all away. And so for seven years, they're being oppressed by their enemies in the promised land. And so they've settled into the promised land with a survival mentality. Do you know what that is? See, what happens is we have these emotions, we have these physiological responses to threats that are natural, like fear, like anger. It's an it's a emotion that's helpful for us. D- uh, disgust is one of those emotions. Like those emotions are designed biologically to keep us safe. Don't eat that poisonous fruit. It's rotten. Disgust. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? 
Some of you are like, what are you talking But your body is not designed to live in a constant state of anxiety, fear, disgust, and distress. It sets your body off. Literally, your immune system shuts down. But that's how most of us live, isn't it? In this constant state. So once you experience any type of threat, if you've ever lived with in poverty, if you've ever lived with a health condition that changes your entire environment and life, it creates a survivalist mentality, a survivor mode where, where all of a sudden things like joy, pleasure, fun, they're off the table. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like I remember when my wife had this random heart condition a year after we were married, sending her to the ER every week. It's terrifying. I used to go on these long runs, but when that happened, this is just one side effect and how it impacted me. It's like I stopped running far because I was afraid that she would call me and we'd have to run to the ER. And so I would run in this quarter mile loop around her house, eight miles through a quarter mile loop because I was terrified. But it, that, that was just a symbol of what was going on internally. Internally, I would drive places like up north to visit her family and I would map along the way all the hospitals before we drove because I was afraid that it, would, it was this random heart thing that would set it, her heart rate would go to 220 and not stop well, without a particular drug in the hospital. She later had surgery. But that, that, that survival mode still exists in me today. I still carry anxiety about health issues. Anyone else know what I'm talking about? You see, so what happens is what happens when, you, when, when you, you're, you're given this abundance, but then you develop this survival mentality, and as a person, it impacts your mind, but as a community, it impacts your capacity to do things. It's almost like you settle into defeat. You settle into this phrase called despair, which is what is all over our culture, which things will always be the way they've always been. So God sends them this prophet and says, you guys missed it. You missed it. You were supposed to obey me, but you're worshiping false God's. But what's amazing about this story, it continues on. God actually begins to do something, and I call it the Gideon moment. And I think this is what's happening in our church. There's a Gideon moment upon us. And I will explain what that means. I believe this is a prophetic call for our church, that there's a Gideon moment for us. God hears the cry of a nation and goes to an individual. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where all the, his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did the Lord bring us, did, the, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So first of all, picture of Gideon. This is a comedy, by the way. If you read this in context, this is hilarious. So what happens is an angel goes to visit Gideon and there's Gideon in a wine press. And this was an ancient wine press. It was a, basically a giant hole and they would, they would put the, the grapes in there and step on them and walk around. So Gideon is down in a wine press, threshing wheat, hiding from the Midianites. So check this out. What you'd have to do to thresh wheat is this. Check this picture. You'd take wheat and throw it up into the air, and the wind would blow the chaff, and the kernel would drop down. And so you just have to imagine Gideon is hiding in a wine press. What is he doing to create? When my imagination is he's throwing up this stuff, 
hiding from the enemy. But then the angel is watching this from a distance and comes to greet him and says, well, hey there, mighty warrior. God's with you. (laughs) What? And then his response is so good because I think this is our response in how we live. His response is, where the hell is your God? Look at around us. We're still under the oppression of the enemies. The enemy is winning. And this is what we do. We get overwhelmed by circumstances. And for Gideon, he had never experienced the abundance of the promised land. All he knew was the faith-filled stories of his ancestors. And because he had never experienced it for himself, that created bitterness and resentment. Where is our God? He's abandoned us. And so I think in this moment of time, if I were to look out at our culture, I would say we have settled with defeat as a church, as the church. I think the church has been for far too long long trying to train people to survive culture rather than to thrive in culture as faithful followers of Jesus. We've rather than, so we either, we we try to survive. Oh my goodness, we're overwhelmed. Look at all the stuff and I can't, I gotta close my eyes and there's nothing. I'm just gonna avoid everyone that's not a Christian. I'm gonna keep everyone safe and and I'm gonna just, you know, download music and media that has no curse words follow the narrow path that's what he means by narrow path Christian music only Lord help us survive and we walk oh we gotta send our kids to public school and we're terrified and the reason we're terrified is because we haven't taught our families as five year olds how to thrive in a culture that's contested against our faith And so rather than surviving, what we've done is accommodate, which is worship their idols too. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, I love you. Yes, uh, it's so good. Oh, bye. I can't help but think that like browsing on the internet, what you're gonna purchase is a devotion to mammon. I think that, like that's the correlation right now I have. Because when I'm feeling down, you know what I want to do? I want to check out products to make me feel a little better. I know I'm not going to buy it, but I just want to look. Anyone else? Just put that in the Amazon cart. <sighs> and then you walk home and there's those stacks, those gifts from Santa Prime. so true, man. It's diapers and cleaning products, but it doesn't matter. You feel, it's Christmas morning. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Diapers for everyone. We accommodate. We settle. Things are getting worse, and our churches are focused on what? We've got to get more people into the seats. That's not what we got to do. We got to release the seats to the people. But we're not... But how can we do that when we don't know how to have healthy conversations with each other? When bitterness and anger and unforgiveness is the norm within the church. 
Well, it's not about generosity. It's about living on a budget and finding how to be financially secure because we're so far over here. We can't talk about leading people to Jesus. We got to make sure we know how to communicate to our spouses, how to deal with conflict with our roommates, how to be single and honor our bodies and our minds, how to be married and honor our bodies and our mind because we have sexual purity as a standard for Christian living, but we're just following the way of culture. Sex outside of marriage is anything outside a covenantal marriage relationship. Any activity that arouses, arouses love. There's not like, oh, what's the line? There's not really a line, okay? The only way you can experience what God intended for sexuality is it a covenantal marriage relationship. That is, anything outside of that is gray and dangerous. But 90-something percent of us are struggling with pornography, and that's the norm. How are we doing? Oh, I am. I'm not worried. This, this is your break, okay? Just take a deep breath. I'm fine. I'm good. I know where, I know where this ends. I'm, not even, I'm on page one. I haven't even got... Okay, so what's happened to the church is we've become passive spectators, rather than active contenders. This is the curse of the American church. Just give me the show. Make me laugh. I will, I will drink my $5 almond milk latte. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm just naming it, okay? It's what I drink. With a tip, $6. I will walk into community with the expectation of, yep, I will, it will be a do-it-yourself spirituality. I like this bit about not being afraid. I like the, the, this teacher, Bill, he's really smart. <laughs> this stuff about giving, mm, okay, yeah. This stuff about laying down my life and taking up the cross, not so sure about that anymore. This stuff about laying down my life and serving others and letting go of my preferences and learning to die well, not so sure. Yeah, this is what we do. We have created institutions called the church that have made us passive spectators. And God, I believe in this moment, is hearing the cry of our nation. And he's looking for Gideon. God hears the cry of a nation and he goes to Gideon. God is looking for people to bring change. And what does Gideon have Look at what he says. So Gideon, it says in verse 14, where is God? Gideon's like, where is God? Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Where is God? Hey, you go and save him. There's no transaction. There's no seven years of discipleship. There's no go through the financial peace. There's, no, there's nothing. It's you go in the strength you have. What's the strength you have? <sighs> He's a coward. And look, it goes even further. It says, look it. He said, um, pardon me, my Lord. And I would like do a stereotype of him, but I'm going to avoid that. Um, like a Steve Urkel stereotype. But how can I... Save Israel, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. He's insecure. 
And a survival mentality produces a scarcity mentality. There's not going to be enough, which produces insecurity. I'm not enough. How could God use me? I'm not, not, I'm not a mighty warrior. God's strategy. What does he see in Gideon? What I see in Gideon is a coward who's insecure, who's afraid, who's settled, a person that lacks faith. He, what is he doing when he's overwhelmed? He's saying, God, where are you? Rather than being consistent and faithful to the promises of God. What does God see in this Gideon? What does he see? Go in the strength you have. He's the weakest. He's the most insecure. Verse 17, Gideon said, well, hey, if, if, if I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. He's literally talking to him, asking him for a sign. Do you think that's funny? Like he's dialoguing with an angel. Give me another sign. It's like you're doing dishes and you hear God say something to you. Well, prove it was you. Well, who else are you talking to? <laughs> think about that? Like give me a sign. That's what we do. We want sign. We need a sign that he's with us. But what, don't you realize that he's already given us a sign? Don't you realize Exodus and Joshua comes before judges and God says his presence is his sign? We don't need circumstances to change our perspective. We need our, the presence of God to change our perspective. We need the, to trust the presence of God. We don't need circumstances to change. We need to trust the presence of God to go with us into the circumstances. The strategy is, is to go, God's strategy is to go to Gideon, who's the weakest, the insecure, someone who's afraid. And our strategy is go with the strongest, the smartest, the biggest, the most famous, and the fastest and most accomplished. What did Gideon have? What makes Gideon a mighty warrior is not his strength, it's not his past achievements. It's simply this. And this is what I want to invite you into. Obedience. The condition of the promised land was built on one thing. If you obey. And Gideon becomes a man who simply hears God's voice and obeys. So the story goes on. And um, so God gives him the sign. And then he finally realized, oh my gosh, it's God. Okay, and then the angel says, don't be afraid. You're not gonna die. And so um, this mighty warrior is, begin, is willing to begin this process. And what I love is God takes Gideon and begins this renewal project. The renewal of Israel begins with a personal renewal of Gideon. The renewal of a nation begins with one guy having a personal encounter with God. And he begins to reorder his life around that encounter. And watch what happens with the rest of the story. A nation begins to change when one person begins to experience God authentically in a new and tangible way and reorders his life around. The Judges chapter six, verse 25, it says this. The same night the Lord said to him, so now he's hearing God's voice, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole. Beside it, so these, these idols in, that, in his household. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bowl as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was still afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather in the daytime. 
renewal begins to take place in Gideon's life. He begins to hear his voice and reorder his life. And then he hears his, his, the voice of, of God and, and he begins to reorder his household. It begins with a personal encounter with God and then it moves to getting rid of the idols in your house. I want to change the nation. Start with yourself. Move to your household. Edwin Friedman, who is the father of system theory, he says this in this great quote. um, He says, it takes one person to change a system or environment, one person to become responsible for change. They can become a non-reactive, non-anxious presence and a change agent for that system. In his book, A Failure to Nerve, he says, whether it be a family or government or the, the army services, This is true across the board. It takes one person. He goes on to say that to change a system, one doesn't need to focus on the entire system, but actually one person who is willing to become a non-anxious presence who stops blaming the system for its problems and becomes responsible and willing, a responsible and willing agent of change can act like an antibody and bring change to that entire system, whether it be families, cities, or governments. People who become a non-reactive, non-anxious, non-anxious agents of change bring healing. So what, rather than focus on being overwhelmed by, by what's out there, we just zero in on what's right in front of us. And we say, yeah, there's a lot of problems in our culture, in our city, in our community. I'm gonna take ownership for it. I'm gonna stop blaming everyone else for my problems. If there's one thing I hear more from millennials is that they're victims to their life. Like, you chose to be a parent you're not a victim to your kids. Own it. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to hear. <laughs> can we talk? I know this is a, Can we talk about the victimhood of millennials? There's never been a more set up generation than our generation. All the other generations want to say amen. amen. <laughs> but we're literally paralyzed by our emotions and feelings. We don't want to change because we don't feel like it. At some point, we have to grow up, own our life, and bring, do what we can to reorder our household. Do what you're physically capable of. Get rid of the idols. You can do that on your own strength. Mother Teresa says, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Amen. Gideon eliminates the idols in his household. He restructures his life. He stops blaming Israel for their problems and he takes on ownership. And in Judges chapter six, verse 33, they begin to wonder who this is and they find out it's Gideon. Verse 33, what happens is um, now all of Midianites and the Amalekites and other Eastern peoples joined forces. So now they're grouping up and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the so it's they're about to be bombarded by their enemies and look at so Gideon gets his life in order gets his household in order in verse twenty four then the spirit of the Lord came on him and he blew the trumpet summoning everyone to follow him and he sent messengers throughout Manasseh calling them to arms so Gideon this little coward this insecure faithless person orders his life and in the moment where he's overwhelmed it's the spirit of God that anoints him. 
He's ready for the Spirit's anointing for a new move. This is what we're called to, to prepare ourselves for the anointing that's gonna come upon us. Because when it happens, it's time to go to battle. And what we, what we like to think, and this is what I've realized, is most of us, and I have way too much of a sermon to continue, um, we, we live in our Western context as if there is no battle, as Christians. Like, churches talk about battle like with other churches. Like, that's our competition. No, we have competition. It's the enemy, it's the kingdom of darkness. And I don't know about you, but I'm not ready to settle with the fact that 11 to 19 year olds are more depressed and suicidal than ever before. Not on my watch. I got little kids growing up. We need to do something to change those numbers. Now, I'm going to prepare my household. Are you going to prepare your household? This is the Gideon moment. There's an army. What's crazy? I'm going to summarize the rest of the story for the sake of time. And you should read chapter 7. He blows the trumpet and tell, go get the people. They're outnumbered. They can't even count the army against them. They're overwhelmed. 30,000 men show up to fight the battle. Coward, anointed by the spirit, blows the trumpet, 30,000. That's pretty good. Would you agree? That's a, yeah, all right. This is, this is a mighty warrior. God, they get ready to go to the valley. And I, I've been in Israel. I've been in the valley the literal valley. I'm, I have my Bible that I took and it says I was there in 2012 on November 12th. And I remember sitting there going, wow, this is where this moment happened. 30,000 men, army. Yeah, they're gonna go against a, a big number. And God's like, no, you have too many people. Too many people. I'm not gonna share the glory with man. I want you dependent in this life for my provision and promise. Get rid of anyone that's afraid. <laughs> 30,000 against countless numbers, like locusts. 20,000 men leave. They're down to 10,000. 10,000 men from 30 to 10. Okay, what's going on? What's God doing? And he goes, no, you're still too many. It's not going to work. Because you're going to win, and you're going to think, oh, we did it on our own strength. We did it through our own practice. We did it on our own righteousness. We did it on our own power. We did it on our own wealth. We did it on our own giving. See, God wants dependence. He wants a life of sacrifice. He wants a life that sets itself up so God has to show up. So he says, all right, take him down to the water, do this thing. Anyone that laps like a dog, get rid of them or whatever it is. It's like this, this whole thing. And there's 300 guys that fit this criteria, from 30,000 to 300 men. And then they go on and they win. See, what was going on in God's strategy is as the army got smaller, it got stronger at the same time. And I think across the Western United States and Western culture, there is this moment where we can't pretend anymore. We can't pretend to follow Jesus and the way of culture anymore because it's opposing the church. There are systems at work that think they're defeating the church, but what's happening is God is going to sift the church. He's going to separate. He's going to make it smaller so it gets stronger so then when we're dependent, that's when it's gonna break and all of a sudden it's gonna change the course of history. That's this moment. 
And you have to get your eyes around this. Stop looking at your own life. Lift your head up for a moment and see what's going on globally. We are at a time like never before. In our generation, we will not be the dominant military superpower or economic power for that mindset. And as Westerners, we live with a victorious narrative. How do we enter in as the remnant, the creative minority, a force to be reckoned with? And what is our force in the promised land to remain faithful to the promise? We are people of the promised land. So in a world of 24-7, we Sabbath. In a world of anger and bitterness, we have forgiveness, humility, and kindness. In a world of consuming, we live with moderation and generosity and sacrifice financially. In a world that's all about me, we look to the others and we move from self to other. In a world that's focused on corruption and lying and cheating, we do honesty and truth at all costs and truth with a capital T because he's resurrected. And our lives reflect the promise through obedience. So this is all I got for you. There are some more notes. Um, so what do you say? Do you hear God's voice? What's he saying to you? What's he saying to you? Not to us generally. What's he saying to you? What does it mean for you to be obedient today? You see, I want to change Long Beach. God, I feel like he's given me a fresh vision. I was talking to my wife during the break and I was like, I just don't feel like this vision. I used to, have, I used to be like oozing with vision and literally I was like, Alex was like, just go get some time with God. And I, and I haven't asked him for it in a long time. I said, Lord, like, would you just give me vision again? And it was like the ocean hit me. <laughs> and it was a simple question. What would the city of Long Beach look like in 100 years if you were faithful to the vision of in Long Beach as it is in heaven? And rather than think about the numbers and how, what venue space and how to get more kid volunteers, which we need, how to get more youth volunteers, which we need, how to do laundry love and how to give and how people, I was like, oh my goodness, what if, what if Long Beach was the most livable city in 100 years? The best education system in all of the United States. 75% with population growth are passionate Christians. 75% of marriages remain faithful and have so much love. And there's a, 20, there's a decrease of divorce rate. What if there, there's a waiting list for kids to be adopted or accepted into homes? There's no kids in the foster system. We have too many families that will take them. What if? What if? And what if we decided today to go after that 100 years? What if we didn't live to see it? Would you be willing to remain faithful for the future generations and live, lay down your life so that others may experience the fruitfulness of obedience? That's what I want to give my life to I'm looking for Gideons. I'm looking for Gideons. I know that the world has said something about you or what you believe. It's time to let go of that. Listen to God's voice. Obey. Get your household in order and say, come Holy Spirit. Because the trumpet is being blown and we got a battle to fight. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.